Hello and welcome to the Economic Review. So this week, the Senate has passed Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill, 50 to 49, after a grueling 27 hours of debate. But this bill is not what it appears to be. An absolutely absurd amount of this spending is completely unrelated to COVID-19. As the Wall Street Journal put it, only $825 billion was directly related to COVID-19 relief, and the other, over $1 trillion, was, quote, expansions of progressive programs, pork, and other unrelated policy changes. So, let's break this bill down. $50 million of this bill is for family planning organizations like Planned Parenthood. A billion and a half is for Amtrak. $86 billion is for pension plans. $35 billion for Obamacare subsidies. $15 billion for Medicaid expansion, and the list goes on and on and on. Democrats included $350 billion in funding for state and local governments, which they say are facing budget shortfalls because of decreased revenue during this pandemic. Now, Republicans were really quick to counter this by saying that this was wasteful and that federal spending should not go towards bailing out irresponsible politicians in mostly blue states. $1 trillion of this $1.9 trillion bill has absolutely nothing to do with COVID-19. Just think about that for a moment. Most of the coronavirus relief bill has nothing to do with the coronavirus. $1 trillion is about $7,000 for every single American taxpayer that will be spent on unrelated progressive policies. This bill is filled with programs to advance political agendas. There's $140 million for a rail project near Nancy Pelosi's house and $500 million for grants to fund activities related to the arts, humanities, libraries, museums, and Native American language preservation. The deeper you dive into this bill, the more obvious it becomes that the majority of it is just ramming through pork barrel legislation under the guise of a relief bill. So... According to the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, just 9% of this bill is dedicated to COVID-19 treatment and only 1% to the vaccine. This is typical of many Democratic programs. In fact, the bill actually seems quite moral on the face of it. It includes $300 in weekly unemployment benefits up to September the 6th and $1,400 checks to many Americans. However, it's really important to remember that this bill costs each and every American taxpayer about $14,000 in the first place. The money you receive is just a tiny fraction of what you paid for it. A morning consult poll found that 71% of voters, including 53% of Republican voters, supported the $1.9 trillion coronavirus aid package when they were told it includes $1,400 in direct payments to some Americans, funding for school and local governments, and extended unemployment benefits. It's quite easy to support until you realize that it's going to cost you and every single other American taxpayer $14,000. As Senator Kenny so rightly put it, the only way I know how to improve it is with a shredder. It's not even a coronavirus bill. Calling this a coronavirus bill is like calling Harvey Weinstein a feminist. 
The Congressional Budget Office says the bill's unemployment provisions will increase deficits by $246 billion and that it's extra $300 a week in federal unemployment benefits through to September could, quote, increase the unemployment rate as well as decrease labor force participation. Of course, there are adverse economic impacts to this kind of spending. When the amount of money given to unemployed individuals goes up this dramatically, so will unemployment, of course. When the government spends a ridiculous amount of money, interest rates go up. Expansionary fiscal policy like this will usually decrease unemployment. But in this case, because of an increase in unemployment benefits, even this doesn't apply. Obviously, such a dramatic increase in the money supply will cause inflation, making the money that you receive worth less than it seems. You can't just expect to give everyone a bunch of money and then expect nothing bad to happen. As interest rates go up, investment declines, which has disastrous effects in the long term on the basis of capital formation. The more money we spend, the riskier America becomes for foreign investors, decreasing the demand for our currency. Not only does this cause our currency to depreciate, but it causes the Federal Reserve to have to increase the yield percentage, leading to even more spending later on. So far, on coronavirus relief, we have spent the equivalent of the entire GDP of Russia, India, and Brazil combined. We can't just expect to throw around enough money to buy the biggest countries on Earth and expect to come out of it with no adverse effects whatsoever. There are also several mathematical problems that I have with this bill. Across America, every state has their own lockdown policy, as you know. A blanket $1,400 for every household making under $150,000, regardless of circumstance or region, makes no sense. $1,400 for someone living in New York City, which has been locked down almost all year, with a 15% unemployment rate and has sky-high living costs, won't even begin to make a dent. Where's that money being pumped into wide-open North Dakota, which has just a 4% unemployment rate, is highly unnecessary. $1,400, when adjusted for living costs, is only equal to about $560 in New York City, whereas it's comparable to almost $1,800 in places like North Dakota, which have been opened up and only faced a brief period of lockdowns. Why should someone in North Dakota, who's only faced a minimal impact from the pandemic, be entitled to what is effectively three times the amount of money that someone in New York City who hasn't been able to work all year receives? Politicians in Washington cannot legislate according to the unique financial situations faced by residents across thousands and thousands of towns and cities. Rather, aid would be best carried out at the state level or can be best distributed based on the level of financial difficulty that that has been incurred by its inhabitants. It does not make sense for the government to distribute money evenly when the situation from state to state is so different. The income limit in order to receive the stimulus check is also nonsensical. $75,000 in New York City is only equal to about $30,000 at the national average when adjusted for cost of living, 
whereas it's worth over $100,000 in many other parts of the country. One dollar is not worth the same amount in Manhattan and rural Alabama, therefore setting the same income limit in order to receive the stimulus check makes no sense. Someone making $75,000 in Manhattan will be struggling much more than someone making $40,000 in Mississippi, and yet they would only receive one-third of the money when adjusted for cost of living. Overall, the lack of mathematical coherency in this bill makes it appear somewhat lackluster and clueless. However, despite this bill's countless flaws, many media outlets were quick to praise it. With so much spending, one thing that we cannot ignore is the national debt. The national debt is one of the largest economic problems facing the United States. When the amount of money that the government wants to spend is higher than the amount of money it takes in through taxes, we create a budget deficit. Accumulations of these deficits is what makes up the national debt. As of now, the government, the national debt is approaching $28 trillion. What's worse is that every year, the government has to pay interest on this debt, just like with any other loan. The interest on this national debt alone costs over $400 billion. The national debt does not even account for unfunded liabilities, which are estimated to cost further hundreds of trillions. Unfunded liabilities consist of the money that the government has promised to pay in the future, but does not have the money neither existing nor projected to pay. This includes things like the future value of Social Security payments above and beyond the Social Security Administration's projected revenue. In reality, the unfunded nature of this debt makes it almost impossible for them to be paid without further increasing the national debt. So, as the national debt grows, it becomes more likely that the government will default on its debt. As the likelihood of default grows, investors face a higher risk meaning that the Treasury has to increase the annual interest payment to compensate new investors, further reducing the amount of spending available, further reducing the amount of money available for public spending. This rise in interest rates creates a sm- snowball effect from higher prices and inflation to a lower standard of living. For example, an increase in the national debt will cause a decrease in housing prices due to higher interest rates causing a corresponding reduction in homeowners' net worth. Like this, and in many, many other ways, the national debt can have adverse effects throughout the economy. $1.9 trillion in spending, after trillions have already been spent on coronavirus relief, mostly to further a democratic agenda, is ludicrous. At this rate, our grandkids will still be paying this debt off. So far, I've talked a lot about the problems with the relief bill, but the solutions are clear. We can keep on spending money until we turn into Greece, but it's clearly going to do more harm than good. The key is to stop legislating for the whole country from Washington, D.C. To better understand why this is necessary, let's use a simple example. So imagine that there are only two cities in the United States. The first one has a problem with the quality of education, and the second has a problem with a really high rate of homelessness. The government writing welfare checks might help the homeless in the second city pay rent, but it does nothing to address and fix the quality of education in the first neighborhood.
Instead, putting more money into welfare means there will be less in the budget to fund schools. Overall, the second neighborhood is much bigger in terms of population. Now, come election time, the candidate that proposes additional funding to help the homeless wins the election. The total budget will remain unchanged, and the budget for other public services such as education is cut even further. The smaller neighborhood's problems worsen, while the more prominent neighborhood gets all the politicians' attention, because getting more votes will help them win the next election. Legislating at a national level can only go so far. Every state has different circumstances, and everyone making and giving $1,400 to everyone making under $75,000 is highly ineffective. It doesn't do anything for the average person in Manhattan and gives a massive boost to people in rural Idaho. The problems that different communities are facing as a result of the coronavirus cannot be fixed simply by giving everyone a check. One thing that is especially necessary in these times is private charity. Private charity is, a much, more is much more localized than government welfare, which can have many advantages. Problems existing in one part of the country are not necessarily the same as in other parts of the country. For example, a homeless shelter might be highly beneficial in Washington, D.C., but it's not nearly as helpful in Mississippi, which has a homelessness rate 24 times lower. Assistance for single parents might be a big necessity in some neighborhoods, but other areas might require services that help them fight drug addiction. There are over 1.5 million nonprofit organizations in the United States, or about 477 per county on average. With the immense amount of charitable giving that takes place, more so than any other nation, many issues differ from neighborhood to neighborhood, which the government cannot reliably tackle. Private charity is exempted from political factors and is free to focus on the real problems that would have taken place in both our hypothetical neighborhoods. Furthermore, it gives people the freedom to choose which causes they want to support. Different people in different places have different values. For example, people in a liberal city such as New York might want to give money to organizations such as Planned Parenthood, which might not be so widespread in more conservative places like Arizona or Georgia. It's crucial that people have the liberty to choose the local causes that they want to support, rather than politicians taking that money through taxes and giving it to the cause that will win them the most votes. The final benefit that private charities have over government welfare is efficiency. A private charity has no incentive to waste money, and it does not need wasteful bureaucracies to support its operation. Unlike with bureaucratic agencies, the money they don't spend will not be cut from their budget next year, but rather it's theirs to spend when they feel it is necessary. They can hire as many employees as they need and pay them according to the market value of their labor to the organization. Encouraging more private charitable giving and making it easier for charities to operate could give rise to more charities than before. The more private charity helps people, the less need there is for government welfare. More money going from the government to charities is the best possible outcome for us all. Thank you so much for tuning into the Economic Review. We'll be back soon with the latest.